and uh, thank the Lord for his great mercy. Yeah, I tell you, um, if God were a friend like I am a friend to some, <laughs> uh, I probably wouldn't have a friend in Jesus. But God is merciful. God is merciful. And so um, what I want to do before we even get into the word is just seek the Lord in prayer together. Let's bow our heads. Oh, Father, we thank you that you are the God who is over and above all things. And yet just the evidence of the Sabbath, just the evidence of, of you stretching out time to be with us, you have demonstrated yourself as being the God who is not just over and above, but the God who is with us. And so, Lord, again, we're just seeking you. We're asking that you would speak to us. We're asking that you would instruct us and counsel us and comfort us and commission us. As we open up this Bible, as we open up to the story of Elijah once again, we ask that you would really read the, story, read the pages of our own hearts and please instruct, please speak to our living reality. We pray this in Jesus' name. Let the family say, Amen. Amen. Take your Bible, if you will, and go with me to the book of 1 Kings. 1 Kings, and we're going to chapter 19. 1 Kings, chapter 19. 1 Kings is in the Old Testament. Uh, it's in the historical books there, so you've kind of made your way through the first five, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, then you got Joshua, Judges, Ruth, then you got your first and seconds, first and second Samuel, and then first Kings. When you've found it, go ahead and say amen. amen. First Kings chapter 19, first Kings chapter 19, and if you've been with us the last few weeks, we've begun this new year, 2015 with a desire to live by the Word of God. We've been looking at the story of Elijah. And I, let me just make this disclaimer. The story of Elijah, though it's short in narrative, it is so powerful. <laughs> um, literally, just preparing for these sermons and stuff, I felt like there could be probably months of material that could be shared. Months worth of study. But we're just compacting it all in three weeks. Are you okay with that? Yeah? Okay. Oh, no, you're not. <laughs> All right. Don't worry. It'll come back maybe 2016. I don't know. <laughs> if the Lord hasn't come back first. All right. <clears throat> so we're in 1 Kings 19, but as we've been going, we looked at, two weeks ago, we looked at Elijah's example of living by the Word and how his ability to live by the Word of God, I would say live and die by the Word of God. It, it was dependent upon the fact that he actually took time to listen to the Word of God. He immersed himself. He allowed every movement of his to be driven by a plane, thus says the Lord. And, and what an example for us to live by, amen? And then in chapter 18, we found that, that God spoke to him once again, and he was not just a man who listened to the word, he was a man who prayed the word. He knew that God had promised rain, yet he prayed for it with a heart that would not let the arm of omnipotence go. And in 1 Kings chapter 19, now we see Elijah again. After that amazing demonstration that God is who he says he is. Remember, fire comes down from heaven, totally consumes the sacrifice, and it wasn't in response to a frenzied prayer, leaping about like the prophets of Baal. No, it was in response to fervent prayer. You remember that story? Yeah. And in chapter 19, we see the next 
the next uh, act, if you will, in the drama of Elijah. So if you're there, let's read it together, starting in verse 1. Okay, you remember at the end of chapter 19, Ahab has run back to Jezreel. No, Ahab, the king, has ridden back to Jezreel, the winter capital of Samaria, excuse me, of Israel. And prophet Elijah actually ran with the chariot. And now in chapter 19, verse 1, it says, And Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, also how he had executed all the prophets with the sword. Now just imagine what that conversation was like. (laughs) here's the king who has really been driven by the queen in this idolatrous apostasy the king was there on Mount Carmel he saw the miracle he saw the manifestation of fire and maybe like with uh, the uh, the surprise and wonder of a child he tells his wife you'll never believe what happened Fire came down from heaven. Everybody saw the Lord, he is God, and all of your prophets, they were executed. (laughs) Verse 2. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So let the gods do to me. You already know where her heart loyalty is. She doesn't believe this story. Even if she knows that it's true, she doesn't submit to it. So let the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. Dun, dun, dun. (laughs) And in verse 3, and when he saw that, he arose and ran for his life. And went to Beersheba. Now, remember, Elijah had just run with the chariot of Ahab to Jezreel, which is in the northern territory. Now, Beersheba, if you have a Bible map, Beersheba is like kind of on the southern edge of Judah, which is south. Okay, so he's going down. He's out. He's booking it. First flight out. Right? He hears the word of Jezebel and he moves. Every story up to this point, every movement of Elijah has been in response to the word of the Lord, except for this one. What in the world just happened to this great spiritual giant, this great hero of faith and prayer that on Mount Carmel simply prayed with earnest faith that God would reveal himself? What happened in the heart of the prophet that he is now running for his life? Not in response to God's word, but to the threat of a woman. Uh, don't get me wrong. <laughs> but you, you see the contrast. I'm just drawing the contrast there. You got it. You got it. Here's, here's what I do know. Remember, we looked at that verse in James where James is talking about fervent, effectual prayer, <clears throat> and he notices the example of Elijah, and he says that Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. Can you see it? I tell you something, no one is immune. No one is immune to the attacks of the enemy. No one is immune to to the schemes of the enemy to destroy, to discourage, to cast doubt. Even those, and maybe I should say, especially those who have experienced immense victory in Jesus. 
Let, let me get this straight, or let's, let's get this straight. Just because you experience a great demonstration of God's power in your life doesn't necessarily mean you have a, an automatic force field around you that you will never ever be attacked. Please don't miss this. Maybe you've been to the mountaintop of a revival experience. The enemy knows that too. And that is when he longs to pounce and to, to discourage so that when we fall, or if we fall, I should say, uh, that would be his prime opportunity to say, see, that mountaintop that you thought was, it wasn't real at all. Maybe you've been to the mountaintop of a, of a baptism experience. And when you thought you had complete victory, you began to experience a sense of disappointment and failure. I tell you what, the enemy never stops, but God never stops too. Notice the rest of the story. In verse 3, when he saw that, he arose, ran for his life, went to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah. He left his servant there. Verse 4, but he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. So he's still running. Elijah is still running. But does God let him run away from himself? Let's keep reading. Elijah came and sat down under a broom tree, and he prayed that he might die and said, Oh, it is enough. Now, Lord, take my life, for I am no better than my father's. Do you hear what's going on in the heart of the prophet? He feels like all that he had just invested himself in for the last three and a half years has just gone to pot. He feels like he has just failed. And he feels like he's just like one of those other prophets whose messages were unheeded. Oh, I'm just like those other prophets. God, just take my life now. Verse 5, then as he lay and slept under a broom tree, suddenly what happened? An angel touched him and said to him, arise and eat. Then he looked and there by his head was a cake baked on coals and a jar of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came back the second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, because the journey is too great for you. So he arose and ate and drank, and he went in the strength of that superfood. Okay? He went in the strength of that food. How long? Forty days and forty nights, as far as Horeb, the mountain of God. Praise God that he never leaves us nor forsakes us. That though we, we recognize that the spiritual war is ongoing, it's incessant, God's grace is ongoing. God's grace never stops. Even through the personal touch, God doesn't just settle for ravens to provide for Elijah this time. He doesn't just settle for a widow of Zarephath to provide for Elijah this time. He himself sends a heavenly messenger Hey, arise, eat, this journey is too great for you. And where did this journey take him? According to verse 8, he went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights as far as, what does your Bible say? Horeb. Does anybody have any footnotes next to that name Horeb? That's actually another name for Mount Sinai. It's another name for Mount Sinai, which is why the rest of that verse says, the mountain of God. So where did this journey take him? 
You know, evidently, uh, Elijah has given up on the idea of dying, okay? <laughs> he's, he's laid down. Uh, God fed him, gave him superfood. Okay, he's not going to let me die. Okay, <laughs> so Elijah just keeps running, keeps running. And instead of, uh, uh, of allowing himself to just kind of wither away, now Elijah is in a different kind of pursuit. And I would suggest, I would submit that he is in hot pursuit of something more than just physical survival. At this point, when he realizes that this journey, whatever this journey is that's too great for him, he knows that God is with him. And now he is looking for more than just physical survival, but spiritual revival. Follow this. If you had a map here, he goes from the North Territory down to the Southern Territory, and now he's going into Sinai, which is on the way to Egypt. So geographically, he's going down, down, down. Spiritually speaking, it's as if he is reversing the covenant of Israel. It's as though he's going from one capital to the other capital, and now he's going to where it all began. God, are you really still the covenant God? And he's looking for some evidence of where God actually initiated the covenant to national Israel. Are we following this today? Yes or no? Yeah? So he's looking for some revival of evidence. God, are you really there? Maybe you remember that verse in Isaiah 64. Isaiah 64, there's this, this sense. Oh God, rend the heavens and come down. You've done this before. You've shown up before. Won't you please show up again? And Elijah is just looking. God, would you please rekindle in my heart and in my mind a sense that you are real. Have you ever been there before? been looking for that mount, God, would you do it again? Would you do it again? And so in verse 9, turn the page if you have a Bible like mine, but in, in verse 9, God addresses him. This time, this is where the word of the Lord comes. And there he went into a cave, spent the night in that place, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him. Praise the Lord, right? The word of the Lord came to him and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? I think it's funny when God asks questions. Come on. Right? It's not like God is looking for answers. God asks questions, not for his sake, but for our sake, right? What are you doing here, Elijah? And in verse 10, Elijah pitifully responds. Honestly, though, he responds. And notice what you find out about Elijah's heart. Verse 10, so he said, I have been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts. Elijah has been a man of zeal. He's zealous for the things God is zealous about. He's urgent about the things that God is urgent about. His heart breaks over the things that God's heart breaks over. I've been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left. What do you hear in there? A, a sense of loneliness, abandonment. The opposition has been 100% successful, and now I'm next. I alone am left. They seek to take my life. Elijah is sensing a, a, a feeling of loneliness, but also of powerlessness. 
Like all that I did, it came to nothing. Nothing. All my zeal, it was, there's no fruit. There's no effect. There's no change. And now he's feeling a sense of fear. They're about to take my life. The opposition, I'm on their, their radar screen. And as God, again, he, the, the whole point of this question, when he said, what are you doing? He didn't just ask, what are you doing, Elijah? He asked, what are you doing here, Elijah? So there's two parts to that question. What, what, what was he doing? What was he doing? Yeah, okay, he, he, was, he was trying to run. Okay, we know that. But what was he doing there? What was he doing there? Again, he was looking for revival. Maybe more specifically, he was looking for a revelation of God. Rend the heavens and come down. And so in verse 11, God speaks again. And notice what his first instruction is. Verse 11. Then he said, go out and what? Stand on the mountain before who? Before the Lord. Notice what God is calling Elijah to. Go out, stand on the mountain before the Lord. Stand before the Lord. Do you remember the very first words that Elijah said to King Ahab? In chapter 17? Oh, let's go back, let's go back. You gotta see this. Okay, chapter 17. A few pages over, chapter 17, verse 1. When you're there, say, I'm there. My Bible says, And Elijah the Tishbite of the inhabitants of Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel lives, before whom I stand. When Elijah went over to the king to declare this, this drought that was to come, he said, Look, God is alive, and I'm his servant. That phrase, before whom I stand, that was a description of servanthood. That was a description of saying, like, look, I'm enlisted in the royal court. He's the God I stand before, at attention, ready to do your will. Where is Elijah now? He's been running. Well, yeah, okay. <laughs> okay, he is in heaven now. Okay, we'll, we'll get to that in a little bit. <laughs> By the way, good point. This guy wanted to commit suicide. God didn't let him die, ever. <laughs> Superfood, right? <laughs> no, no, but by, by the point now, in 1 Kings chapter 19, where is Elijah now at that point? He's on the mount, he's running. Apparently, he's been running from the service of God. And the very first things that God is trying to say in chapter 19, verse 11, is hey, go stand before the Lord again. God is preparing him. He's about to recommission him. He's about to commission him out of the cave. He's about to commission him. He wants him to stand in that position of service once again. And when we look through Scripture at those times in which God commissions a prophet, he often, with that recommission, or with that commission, he often reveals himself. Think about Moses when he was commissioned. Burning bush. Right? Think about Isaiah when he was commissioned. Isaiah chapter 6. He sees the Lord high and lifted up. You think about Ezekiel when he was commissioned. He saw this vision of God's throne that was mobile. Right? So when God commissions, he reveals himself. 
And that's exactly what God wants him to be prepared for. Just now. Go, stand before the Lord. Stand before the Lord. So we're back in chapter 19. Chapter 19, verse 11. So how does God reveal himself? Chapter 19, verse 11. Go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord, and behold, the Lord passed by. Does that remind you of any other story in Scripture? What story? Moses, right? Exodus chapter 33. We've already seen hints of the Moses motif here, right? Superfood for 40 days and 40 nights. Moses went without food for 40 days and 40 nights. Where was Elijah? On the mountain of God, Mount Sinai. Where was Moses without food for 40 days and 40 nights? On Mount Sinai. Okay, so there's just really, really awesome parallel. So God is about to reveal himself. And how does he do it? And behold, the Lord passed by. And a great and strong wind tore into the mountains and broke the rocks in pieces before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a, what does your Bible say? Still small voice. Still small voice. Maybe your version says a gentle whisper. My footnote says a delicate whispering. So he, notice, notice where God, God is trying to reveal himself to Elijah, but notice how his glory is not revealed, right? It's not revealed in the rock-shattering wind. It's not revealed in the unsettling quake. It's not revealed in the, the flaming fire. But his glory is revealed in the delicate whisper of his voice. His voice. You see, when you think about even Moses' experience, yeah, you know, Moses, if you know that story in Exodus 33 and 34, Moses supposedly saw the Lord, right? Right? Uh, he was kind of hidden by God's hand, and when God passed by, he was able to see his back. But that wasn't his glory. When Moses discerned the glory, it was actually not what he saw, but what he heard. Exodus 34, verse 7, he heard the Lord proclaim, the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering, etc., what Moses saw of God's glory was actually the declaration of who he is. And so if you're looking for the glory of God, it's not so much a dramatic manifestation of fiery pizzazz, but the discerning of his voice. Let that sink in for just a second. <laughs> How many of you have ever longed, God, I want to see you? Has that ever, yeah. God, I want to, to, to have firsthand evidence of your presence in my life. But when God revealed the glory, his glory to Elijah, it wasn't in some bombastic, you can't deny this sort of way. It was in the still, small voice. Sometimes we're looking for God's presence in our lives. And as I look at the story of Elijah, I realize that instead of first looking for wind, earthquakes, or fire, I ought to first listen for his word. A 
That's why Psalm 46 verse 10 says, be still and know that I am God. You want to know that God is God? Be still and listen to the declaration of his character. I think too often we allow Christianity to boil down to feelings. When I feel him close, when I feel that wind, when I feel that fire, then I know he is near. Friend, Christianity is much more than feeling. It's not walking by feeling. It's walking by faith. Faith comes by the hearing of his word. We can know that God is God and that God is present even in the absence of wind, earthquake, and fire. How? By knowing his voice, listening to his word. So have you been listening? <laughs> this is the experience that Elijah temporarily severed himself from. You know, when, when he allowed the word of Jezebel to dictate his movements, he severed himself from the ability to discern the glory of God through his word. And that's why now God is recalibrating his heart, recommissioning him, not with another fiery demonstration, but with a challenge to listen to the voice of God. God had more for Elijah to hear. He had more for Elijah to live and do. But he needed Elijah's ears to be reopened, to be dug out, so to speak, from all that running. <laughs> And so, how God speaks to him is, is, is so important here because this is how God speaks to us. This applies both to our ability to know God and I would also say our ability to make him known to others. Think about this. I'm just kind of switch gears just a little bit. Because we want God to reveal himself, but if he's revealing himself primarily through his word, primarily through the delicate whispering of his voice, the revelation of his character, then that implies that our ability to share that knowledge of God with others does not necessarily have to come through wind, fire, or earthquake. Think about this. When you have thought about wanting to share what you know of God with someone else, have you ever felt intimidated that I have no uh, compelling way to share this. I have no um, Mount Carmel-like way to convince people. Do you, do you hear the question that I'm asking? This applies to not just our knowing of God, but our making him known to others. Let me read something that struck me uh, this week when I was studying. It says, it is not always the work that makes the greatest demonstration that is the most successful in accomplishing God's purpose. It is not always the most learned presentation of God's truth that convicts and converts the soul. Not by eloquence or logic are men's hearts reached, but by the sweet influences of the Holy Spirit. It is the still small voice of the Spirit of God that has power to change the heart. <sighs> Praise the Lord. <laughs> we may not be able to preach fiery sermons. We may not have much of a, an earth-shattering, earthquake-compelling pulpit to speak from. But we can still be the conduits of the sweet influence of the Holy Spirit 
leading people, whispering to people, revealing his character to people. Does this make sense today? We don't need wind, fire, and earthquake in order for people to realize the Lord, he is God. Because it's not those things that changes people's hearts. It's the power of the Holy Spirit. The revelation of his character. That's why Isaiah 30, verse 15, if you just have a pen, write that down. Isaiah 30, verse 15, it says, In quietness and in confidence is your strength. What? My strength is in what? (laughs) In quietness and in confidence is your strength. Believe it. Believe it. It's not by grunt. It's not by miraculous push, you know? It's in quietness and confidence. The still small voice of God. The rest of this story, there's still more to go as we wrap it down here, wind it down here. God's response to Elijah. In verse 12, we we see that it wasn't, you know, after the earthquake there was a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still small voice. And now in verse 13, so it was when Elijah heard it that he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood in the entrance of the cave. Okay, now he's standing before who? He's standing before the Lord. He's ready to be recommissioned. You follow this, this narrative. Okay. He's standing before the Lord. He went out and stood in the entrance of the cave. Suddenly a voice came to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? God just repeats the same question. He's trying to disarm in a gentle way. He's trying to disarm Elijah's resistance to the commission. In verse 14, Elijah, hey, same question, same response. Verse 14, I have been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts. Because the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword, I alone am left, and they seek to take my life. Now God tries to deconstruct Elijah's complaint. And he gives him a few things to chew on. The first is an instruction. The second is an assurance. Okay? An instruction and assurance. What's the instruction? Verse 15, Then the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive, anoint. So this is an act of, of selecting someone for office, uh, an act of selecting by divine commission a leader. Okay? When you arrive, anoint Hazael as king over Syria. Also, you shall anoint Jehu, the son of Nimshi, as king over Israel. Oh, praise God. Ahab doesn't have to stay there. There's, there's one more. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel-Meholah, you shall anoint as prophet in your place. The instruction that God gives to Elijah is to raise up leaders who will carry forward the work that you seem to think has failed. It's like, hey, God says to Elijah, hey, I I am not done, and neither are you. (laughs) I am not done, neither are you. This work will go forward. He goes on to say, it shall be, in verse 17, it shall be that whoever escapes the sword of Hazael, Jehu will kill, and whoever escapes the sword of Jehu, Elisha will kill. In other words, there will be a reform that will be complete, and in verse 18, yet I have reserved 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. In other words, there is a faithful remnant 
Elijah, you may feel all alone, you may feel like a failure, but one, you're not alone, and two, what seems to be failing will actually be completed. The point is this. Suicidal Elijah has just been recommissioned. Think about that. This guy is far from perfect, and he is still asked to serve. You may feel intimidated about stepping into leadership roles because you don't have it all together. You don't have very much experience. You have a really bad track record. When you stand before the Lord, His grace is sufficient. (laughs) Even broken people, God can recommission. And I think it's actually part of His plan to remedy us in our brokenness, to serve others. Because often our brokenness is the result of focusing so much on ourselves. I alone am left. And so he remedies us by causing us to focus on other people, raising up other leaders, discipling someone else. That's really what Elijah was asked to do. For the disheartened, there is a sure remedy. This is from Prophets and Kings. I love it. For the disheartened, there is a sure remedy. Faith, prayer, work. (laughs) Remember the disciples? At the end of Jesus' life in Matthew chapter 28, they're supposed to gather with the risen Savior who has just overcome the cross. And in Matthew chapter 28, verse 18, it says they all gathered, but some doubted. What? He's right there. (laughs) But some doubt it. And then he goes on to say, hey, look, all authority under heaven and earth has been given to me, therefore go. He was speaking to doubters. People who are despondent. Hey, if you're despondent, if you're depressed, if you're doubting, then do the work of the Lord. (laughs) Sometimes that's the best remedy. You know, I've often wondered, you know, going back to this idea, where is Elijah now? Well, He's, he's actually in heaven. <laughs> According to 2 Kings, he never experienced death. Elijah was translated. He was picked up by a chariot of fire. <sighs> now, man, that's a sermon for another day. But I've often wondered, why? Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. I mean, I could understand Enoch. Okay, yeah, he walked with God, right? But why Elijah? And as I thought about this, I realized, well, there was another time where Elijah shows up in Scripture. Post-translation. Do you know what story I'm talking about? It was a time in which Jesus was seeking a place of prayer. Jesus was seeking a place of prayer, needing some encouragement, so he brings three of his closest disciples with him. Now, when I'm saying that, we, we often think of Gethsemane. But before his trial in Gethsemane, he actually had a pre-Gethsemane. It was on a mountaintop, and there Jesus is praying. The disciples fall asleep, like they did a few months later. But there, when Jesus is needing encouragement, heavenly encouragement, God actually sends Moses and Elijah. Moses was, had a special resurrection. God just loved this guy so much, he needed him there right now. And apparently, Elijah was so needed in heaven, and I've 
I've, I've often wondered why, and maybe it was for that very time. When Jesus, the Son of God, praying his heart, I don't know what he prayed. God, these guys aren't getting it. <laughs> I'm trying. I'm try- it feels like I'm failing. I've got limited time here, Lord. And Elijah's word to him is, look, you may just want to hole up in a cave right now. But if you're faithful, all of this will be worth it. He knew that his life, his translated life, was uh, on layaway, so to speak. His life was dependent upon Jesus fulfilling his commission. Oh, but you got to do this. (laughs) Come on now, (laughs) right? So Elijah, cheering him on, come on, come on. Keep giving yourself, keep giving yourself. And as you do, you'll save yourself. You see, when God told Elijah, hey, look, there's 7,000 others who haven't bowed their knee to Baal, this assurance wasn't an out for Elijah. You know, we have that tendency, oh, praise the Lord, the Bible workers are here. I don't need to go knock on doors. Huh? When God told Elijah, look, there's 7,000 others. You're replaceable. No, that's not what he was saying. There are others. That assurance was not supposed to release him from mission, but to recommission him to mission. You know where I'm going with this. Yeah, there there are souls all around looking wistfully to heaven, Wondering, how can their heart be reconciled to the Father? There may be 7,000 others who can do it, but there's no one who can do what you can do. The tendency is to see others doing ministry and to consciously or unconsciously wash our hands of it ourselves. (laughs) I know this tendency, that's why I'm saying it, all right? (laughs) I know this personally. And this week, I read this. This is from page, excuse me, Prophets and Kings 171. Long statement, and I know I'm, long statement, but it's power. Okay, here it is. In such a time as this, every child of God should be actively engaged in helping others. Amen. As those who have an understanding of Bible truth try to seek out the men and women who are longing for light, angels of God will attend them. Much depends on the unceasing activity, not the sporadic flip of the switch when it's time for the prophecy seminar. Much depends on the unceasing activity of those who are true and loyal. And for this reason, Satan puts forth every possible effort to thwart the divine purpose to be wrought out through the obedient. He causes some to lose sight of their high and holy mission and some to become satisfied with the pleasures of this life. Others he causes to flee in discouragement from duty because of opposition or persecution. But all such are regarded by heaven with tenderest pity. That personal touch. God didn't just leave Elijah to die and wither away. To every child of God whose voice the enemy of souls has succeeded in silencing 
the question is addressed, what doest thou here? I commissioned you to go into all the world and preach the gospel to prepare people for the day of God. Why are you here? Who sent you? Brothers, sisters, are you in a cave? Have you been silenced in a cave somewhere? God has called us to prepare a people for his soon second coming. Maybe he's called you to prepare your own household. Don't hole up in a cave. Maybe he's called you to prepare your neighbors. Don't hole up in a cave. Whoever it is that he's called you to prepare, don't run for the cave. And if you are in that cave, know that heaven looks on you with tenderest pity, asks the simple question, what are you doing here? Come, stand before the Lord. Stand before the Lord. Do you hear that voice today? What's the practical takeaway as we walk away here today? Practical takeaway. First, be on guard. The enemy doesn't stop. That's the first one. Be on guard against the enemy's schemes to push you into a cave, to silence your your, your voice and your passion. Be on guard against that. Second, check your uh, penchant or your desire, your tendency for those fiery manifestations of God's presence and recover the simple discipline of listening to the still small voice. Amen. Amen. Here's the third one. Come out of that cave. (laughs) Stand before the Lord already. And don't let the 7,000 others do it for you. Do the work personally. Look, I'm going to just quickly, there are certain things you can do even today. Even today. You ready for this? You ready? You want to write them down? Maybe? Take out that flyer. Huh? <laughs> no, take out that flyer. Write it down. These are just simple suggestions. Things you can do even today. First, it requires going, exiting through the lobby. Okay? Exiting through the lobby. Why? Because there's a sign-up table for being able to volunteer for the Prophecy Seminar. Is this a shameless plug? No, it's not shameless. I'm not. <laughs> okay, look, look. It's a, an opportunity to be joyfully involved in linking others to Christ. Hey, wait, I can't be there for the full two weeks. Two weeks? I can't be there for the full two weeks. Well, that's okay. That's why we're working with teens. We can rotate in and out. Okay? So sign up. Sign up. And if you're looking for a suggestion, sign up for... Uh, I'll, let you, I'll let the Holy Spirit lead you on that one, okay? <laughs> okay, my suggestion was this. There's a list called spiritual mentors. What's a spiritual mentor? A spiritual mentor is someone who will be mindful at the prophecy seminar to make a connection with someone who is coming along. And you want to be someone who makes sure that they don't feel alone. Amen. That when the prophecy seminar is done, When decisions are made and they're not sure how to turn that into action, you're there to study with them, to pray with them, to encourage them. When they make decisions to act and they act against that, you're there to encourage them, pray for them, and study with them. Sign up to be a spiritual mentor. I'm not even like super experienced myself. Hey, hey, suicidal Elijah (laughs) was recommissioned. All right? Sign up. 
Use your passions, use your gifts. Here's another one, sign up to be trained. Heidi and Sherry May, they're gonna have this uh, the training seminar, Evangelism to Go, sign up to be trained. You, you may feel like you don't have the ability to, you know, to, to communicate with others or whatever, simple training. Come next weekend, sign up for that. Third one, today, there's an opportunity to do visitation outreach. You may not feel like uh, you have very much to offer, but you can smile. And you can shake a hand, and you can simply say, hey, look, we just wanted you to know that we love you. That's all it is. That's all it is. Visitation outreach right after potluck, okay? Here's the fourth one, and this is the unexpected twist. Are you ready? Sabbath school. What? Did you just say Sabbath school? Sabbath school. Did you know Sabbath school ministry is one of the most powerful tools for evangelism and discipleship? Amen. Hello, it's listening to the voice of God through his word. So Sabbath school ministry, what can I do? How, how, how can I come out of the cave and be involved in Sabbath school? Well, first, go to Sabbath school. Amen. Amen. All right. Here's why. Because your attendance is not just for you. You can go to disciple someone else. Someone's not quite sure, you know, where to turn in their butt. Hey, you can go to help them out. Someone's not quite sure what, what that part of the lesson really meant. You can go to, to discuss it with them some more, encourage them some more. Does that make sense? Yes. Go. Attend. Uh, keep, keep your notes going because I'm not done yet. <laughs> Here's the second one regarding Sabbath school. Get involved. Get involved. The truth of Sabbath school is that it is a powerful tool for discipleship and evangelism, but it will only grow as our capacity to lead it. Did you, did you catch that? It will only grow to our capacity to lead it. Maybe you saw in the bulletin that, you know what, if you have a passion to teach a Sabbath school class, we're looking for that. Why? Because we're discontent with our Sabbath school classes currently? No. Because we only have capacity to serve as it's contingent upon our leadership to serve. And so what we want to see is more people to lead. Uh, am I, are we okay with that? Yeah? You can only fill up a water bottle so much. If you want more water, you need more bottles. Yeah? Okay. All right, all right, all right. So here's the thing. Get involved. Get involved. You, you, you want to talk to Harold Barnett? Let him know, hey, I'm willing. I have no idea what I'm doing, but I'm willing. Hey, we'll teach the teachers, okay? That's for adult Sabbath school classes. That's for children's Sabbath school classes. You may not feel like you've got, like, you know, all this uh, pizzazz and charisma for childhood mini or child ministry, youth ministry, or whatever. That's all right. God just needs willing people who will be sent. Is that okay today? Yeah? Okay. I, I, I didn't just want to say, come out of the cave and stand before the Lord and say, have a nice day. No. I wanted, I wanted to give you tangible things that you could actually do to come out, stand before the Lord, say, hey, I'm here, ready to serve. Amen. So there's some, some suggestions. And if, if there's something on that list that, is, that the Holy Spirit is tugging you to do, by the grace of God, move forward. By the grace of God, move forward. If there's something I haven't even mentioned that God is still tugging you to do, look. By the grace of God, move forward. How many of you long to come out of the cave and stand before the Lord?
Amen. Amen. Let's bow our heads. Father, thank you so much for the experience of Elijah. Lord, this is a man who had ups and downs. And God, maybe some of us in this room have, are in the middle of those ups and downs right now. And I just thank you that you speak to us, not with the voice of doom, but with the still, small, delicate whisper, the revelation of your character. And Lord, we just want to stand before you, not because we're all of that, not because we're your greatest gift to the ministry, no, but because by serving others, we'll actually save ourselves. So please lead us, please teach us, please use us. In Jesus' saving name, let the family say, Amen. 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 Happy Sabbath.